I'm Mindy Peterson, and this is Enhanced Life with Music, the layperson's guide to enjoying music's benefits. Today's episode is the first episode I'm designating as an artist spotlight episode. I plan to have many more as a way to get to know the people behind the music and hear more about their individual musical journeys. I'm delighted to spotlight composer Douglas Neans in this first artist spotlight episode. Dr. Neans joins us today from Cincinnati, Ohio. His compositions include contemporary classical, orchestral, vocal, choral, music theater, and opera music, and have been performed worldwide at Steinway Hall, Carnegie Hall, festivals in Italy, Poland, Czech Republic, Ukraine, Austria, the U.S., and Australia. His works have also been included on a number of solo and compilation recordings. Dr. Neans is the recipient of numerous national and international awards. His works have been broadcast on television and radio, including television music that was nominated for an Emmy Award. He was born and raised in St. Louis and immigrated to Australia when he was 13. He is a graduate of Australian National University, has a master's from Queens College in New York, and a doctorate from Yale. He currently lives and works in Cincinnati with his wife, Josephine, and their two children, as well as what he's described as the director of our household, our small dog, Honey. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the show, Dr. Neans. Thank you, Mindy. It's good to be here. In preparation for today's conversation, I came across a quote of yours. You said, in my youth, I really wanted to use something to communicate the deeper aspects of life and living, to cut through social niceties and communicate with people in a more genuine and immediate way. I tried art, religion, graphic art, and finally music. Music with its visceral immediacy seemed to really resonate with me. And you've also said, music affords this tremendous pathway directly to the human heart. Love that. Uh, Can you tell us some more about how you came to the world of full-time musician and composer? Well, yeah, I was a late late starter, you know, because I was really kind of searching, like in my early to mid-teens, I was really trying to find a, a way to reach out to people. And during that time, did experiment a lot with various religions and other art forms and, and things to somehow communicate to people on a, on a deeper, maybe even crypto-spiritual level. So with regard to all of that, I did try my hand at graphic arts, and I'm not bad with it, except I'm not really great with life drawing. So uh, that that was a, I felt a limitation, you know. Uh, then I also tried writing and things like that and painting and all of those kind of arts. And then finally settled on on music. And the reason why I think it has such an appeal to me is that it does have this really deep immediacy about it in a way that other art forms, you really need to have your brain be a kind of filter for understanding what it is you're looking at, what it is you're reading, uh, even with dance, what it is they're what it is they're doing up there on stage, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas with music, uh, it does have this really strong capacity to just lay right into your 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 guts and your and your heart. And then, if it does, you have the opportunity to to dig deeper and understand maybe more of the subtle aspects of it too that can be appreciated with the with the brain. Uh, so um, that's that's kind of why I got started that way. And so I started as a performer on flute mm-hmm. and really liked interacting with audiences that way, too, because there's there's this immediacy from the stage to the audience as well, which is very immediate, very emotional, uh, very dramatic, very visceral. 
and I really liked that. And then from that, uh, I moved into music composition. Mm-hmm. Now, how did you choose flute? And how old were you when you started playing? Yeah, that's a good question. I was pretty old. I was about 15, I guess. Oh, when okay. I, and is that your when first, I started? was that your first musical instrument? It was, yeah. Ah, interesting. Uh, so I, I did try a, a number of different instruments. I tried the violin uh, and, you know, deep, deep respect for anyone who can play that instrument. Yeah, yeah no kidding. <laughs> I took lessons for a year or so on that, and yeah, it, it's tough. It's really hard. Uh, I tried the clarinet, I tried piano, but there was something about the flute that just seemed to sit well. I think on some kind of level, you know, the instrument kind of chooses you a little bit mm. uh, in terms of how your, how your body and brain work. You know, the thing with, say, I guess, violin and piano is they're very digitally intensive. I mean, everything happens in the hands. Mm-hmm. Whereas with woodwind and brass instruments, it's, it's more distributed through your body, through your, your breathing and your lips and your, and your fingers and mm-hmm. so on. So I think that kind of appealed to me. It felt like a more of a whole of body thing and i i understand that's completely incorrect that all instruments have a whole of body sure. uh, thing even even piano but for me at the time as a as a jejun 15 year old I, mm-hmm. I i thought yeah flute <laughs> yeah now did you start playing flute in a school band did you start with private lessons how did you get started i started with private lessons because i was starting from scratch you know i mean i really couldn't play i, I couldn't read music I, it was like a whole new world for okay. me so i started with lessons and learned how to read and then later on played in what i vaguely recall as a pretty bad school orchestra uh, <laughs> we had a very good choir where i went to school and i was in that as well mm-hmm. and then from that i, I went into like a community band and, and got some experience there mm-hmm. and then started auditioning for music schools and got into one Uh, a good one I was lucky and was pushed pretty hard by a very good teacher and so I made pretty rapid progress Mm, it sounds like it yeah Mm. Uh, three major sources of inspiration for your music that you talk about are human emotion the organic and natural world and the study of time and memory and you've said that these three seemingly disparate areas of research coalesce naturally through music. You've noted that these elements can easily present metaphors for our deeper human existence and struggles. You like to communicate about life and life's deeper experiences through what you do. Talk to us about those three sources of inspiration, kind of how you settled on those and, and how you use those to create these metaphors. Yeah, that's an interesting question, you know, because this is a statement of where I am, I guess, now as an artist, you know, at, at this this end of my life. Mm. Whereas when I was younger, those things did not play as much of a part. Mm. The, the kind of intellectual ambition to make something that is kind of, quote unquote, groundbreaking and all that uh, kicks in a lot more when you're when you're young. Uh, so as I've gotten older, I've really become more attracted to the complexity but unity that you find in nature, which kind of mirrors what we do in music a lot. Music is very complex, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the sound unifies everything. Uh, so that even on the page, there are many, many, many details that we have to get control of as composers. But it all comes together as one sound. And that, that kind of is how nature works, too. And really, I think as, as people, that's how we work, too. There's a lot of things that contribute to who we are and how we are. And I think that 
that is uh, a sum total of our life experiences. And so, to me, that's how they kind of mix together in this really interesting and deep amalgam that I that I find endlessly fascinating. Mm. So, in the evolution of your your musical career and the development of your musical career, at what point do you feel like you went from looking for that next big thing to kind of narrowing down the focus of your inspiration to to what it is now? That's an interesting question also. Uh, I got a job in Australia when I was about 40. And it was at that point that I also thought, you know, I'm going out of the kind of uh, melting pot of, of the U.S., down to really the last place on earth before Antarctica. <laughs> and, so, and so if I'm going to do anything new or different, uh, now is the time. And that coincided with a residency I had in Czech Republic, where I went to Terezin, or Theresienstadt, as it was called, during the war, during the Second World War, which was a described as a Jewish-run, Jewish settlement by the Germans, but in fact, it was just a, a propaganda site and a, a kind of stepping-off point before Auschwitz. Mm. And a lot of artists and children were killed there um, uh, just by attrition, you know, not being fed and being worked to death, mm. or sent on a train straight to Auschwitz. So I went there, and that was just profoundly uh, upsetting, moving um, reorienting. Uh, and then because I was so close to Poland, I thought I should really go to, you know, take the train to Krakow and, and go to Auschwitz. And so I did. And this was all within the space of maybe three weeks. I, I saw these two places and that made me very aware that the kind of musical language I was using was completely inappropriate to be trying to speak to anything to do with this mm, <laughs> so sure, i can imagine that so yeah, that had that that had a really realigning effect with me as an artist and it resulted in this really major work of mine called shoah requiem which is a two-hour long 17 movement mm -hmm. response to the, what i experienced at these places mm. and kind of i hope a testament to what we really cannot allow to happen again and could easily sure, happen again. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, from there, I think I got first back in touch with kind of deep emotional response. Uh, and that led to a knock on effect of changing how my music was. Mm -hmm. uh, and so both my musical language and my kind of human language started to change and then I, I think because referencing people in this horrible environment, the environment itself started to, to swing in as a thing. And so from that point, those three things started to take shape as, as the kind of direction of my, of my music. Mm. Mm. And very fascinating. There's another quote that I liked of yours. It, it said, the creation of sound worlds of great paradox is a huge fascination. And that that uh, phrase, the creation of sound worlds, really caught my attention. A previous guest used the phrase, the tonal universe. And mm. I'm just, for some reason, intrigued by those different ways of referring to the tonal universe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Well, no. you know, I, th- I think when you're faced with a large orchestra or even a, a fantastically large pipe organ or an extensive chamber ensemble, the multiplicity of reactions one has to that orally, you know, as, a, as an artist is really intriguing. And sometimes I think the possibilities themselves, especially when you first start a work, are so vast that it does feel like you're, you're entering this absolutely new, endlessly varied, endlessly possible kind of uh, universe or world. But it's just a world of sound. And so that's why I think I, I think of it as sound worlds. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes these are dark, dangerous places, and sometimes they're bright and beautiful places, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now you have lived in some really varied places. You you grew up in St. Louis. Right. You've lived in Australia, the Czech Republic, Alabama, Ohio. I mean, those are really varied environments. How did they affect who you are and your music? Uh, well, you know, I think we I first uh, emigrated to Australia when I was 13 and you know, with my family, with my parents and spent the probably half my life there okay. and i've spent about the other half of my life here i've i've spent a lot of time in the czech republic though i've never actually lived there as a resident mm. uh and i've i've traveled a lot in you know europe and asia and i think the the thing i find is that every place has a package of good and bad things you know things that you really love about the place and mm-hmm. things that you wish gee i wish they'd just get their act together about this thing sure. <laughs> you know um <laughs> So, you know, I think we all know the challenges we face in, in our own country mm-hmm. uh, these days. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure lots of people feel like, gee, I wish we could just get that worked out and uh-huh. fixed up. Right. And it's the same, I think, anywhere. But what the things are changes, you know. So I guess what I'm trying to say is nowhere is really perfect. Mm-hmm. And everywhere is inspirational in a, in a really different set of ways, you know. I mean, in Australia, the country itself is just so intensely beautiful and and varied and timeless, you know, that it, it really does, uh, you know, draw you in a, in a really evocative kind of way. And some of my works uh, relate to that. Mm-hmm. In America, it's it's a lot more, uh, I guess, well, densely populated, industrial, big. And so, you know, the, the things that, that happen here tend to be on a on a much bolder, almost dramatic kind of level in, that you don't really find in smaller countries, you know. So mm. I think that the most intriguing kind of influence I've had is just in seeing how different people live their lives and how different cultures work and what's important in different cultures and what's unimportant in different cultures. Mm-hmm. And that has been really just a huge privilege to see. Mm. Neat. Your creative work includes electroacoustic music. You've been the director of the SCREAM studio. SCREAM stands for Southern Center for Research into Electric Electroacoustic Music. I'm not really sure what electroacoustic music is. Is it a combination of electronic and acoustic? Yeah, it can be. So uh, there's a range of ways to make electronic music. There's you, know, you can program it on a computer and have it just come out uh, in pure digital form, or uh, you can have an acoustic instrument play along with electronics, and that's a mm-hmm. that's a, a long-standing duet or collaboration that mm-hmm. that has happened since well, about the fifties, I guess, nineteen fifties. Then you have a range, increasingly, of electronic instruments that are played. I mean, you've you've seen a lot of these electric guitars, synthesizers, and stuff in in pop music. 
Yeah, and I'm even thinking of Trans-Siberian Orchestra, those violins. Sure. Yeah. Yep, yep. So there's electric violins. I've, I've written a lot for electric cello. Mm. My latest opera was for amplified soprano, electric cello, and surround sound electronics uh, with video. And, it, you know, it, it sounds, whoa, I, I don't know about that. But <laughs> you can do... <laughs> You can do surprisingly beautiful things with these with these new resources, and they can do things that you know humans can't do. You know, even on on acoustic instruments with pedals and little gadgets, you can you can do things that physically aren't possible. Like in my opera, I had the the cello leap up three octaves, oh. and that's that's like a that's like a massive shift that couldn't be possible. Oh, okay. um, you know, at the speed that I was requesting it. Okay. But we just we just put a pedal on. It's jumping up and down. Sure. Uh, okay. Really, really quickly, the changes could happen quickly. But the cellist isn't really changing what what he's playing. But uh-huh. the music just leaps up and down depending on the the pedal adjustments. So there's things like that. You know, electroacoustic uh, music can be reactive in real time to what's being played. Uh, there's a range of software and hardware approaches that will allow that to occur so that the electronics can more or less accompany a live instrument. Uh, they can extend things that, that humans can't do in terms of speed and reach. Uh, um, so, and, and Tamberley, too. It's just a, a, a fascinating world, Tamberley, that uh, you don't get through traditional instruments. Tamberley. Yeah, sound? like the yeah yeah the sound the actual sound of the instruments. Oh, know, the, okay. The, mm. Sure. And did you get into? Were you introduced to electroacoustic music through a commission, where somebody specifically wanted that? How'd you get into it? Uh, I got into it firstly, yeah, through commissions. I I wrote a a number of of pieces early on in my career. Well, one of the first pieces I wrote was a commission from the Melbourne University Theatre Company for Incidental Music to the Tempest. And they were producing this in a very small theater, so they couldn't even have one instrument there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they had it had to be pre-recorded. Mm. So I I did this. This was in the days of of tape recording. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did this pre-recorded ensemble, which we did a, a quadraphonic diffusion of, and I wrote that out all by hand in a score. And we just went into the studio and recorded, it, put effects on it, and and so that was my first real taste of it while I was still an undergraduate student. And then through various courses, you know, that I had to take both at the undergraduate and master's and doctoral level, I got to know more and more about, you know, more sophisticated approaches. And as we became more and more digital, mm-hmm. easier approaches than, than cutting up bits of tape like yeah. we had to do well, in the old days. Yeah, base. I imagine that field has just exploded <laughs> in terms of what's available between the time oh, you were an incredible. undergrad and today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Huh. Yeah. Oh, neat. You are, you've been with the University of Cincinnati since 2008, and you're currently in a position that's called the Norman Dinnerstein Professor of Composition Scholar at CCM. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's correct, yeah. So can you tell me what, I'm not sure what that means. Uh, well, I teach composition and orchestration and music business to composers. I have a, a studio of around eight composers at all levels, from undergraduate through to doctoral level. Okay. And we have we have weekly lessons, just as you would other places, you know, at other conservatories. And then I, I teach a, a class every semester, too. Okay. All right. What kind of music do you like to listen to if it's purely for pleasure, doesn't have anything to do with your work? I know you've said that if an artist is communicating in an elegant, technically well-crafted way, I'm usually pretty sold on that music. 
what what constitutes elegant? Like, do you do you listen to country? Do you listen to rock? Is that considered? Yeah, elegant? yeah, yeah. I do, I do, I do. Um, Sacred. I think. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, really, I, there's only one kind of music, you know, and that's good music. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so to me, that's the that's the dividing line, and and there, there's a lot of music that is maybe a little bit uninformed, maybe a little bit uninspired, maybe a little bit unambitious mm. uh, in terms of quality okay. um, that I, I think doesn't really appeal to me. But, you know, just lately I listened to, who was it? Who was I listening to? Jeff Goldblum, I think I was listening to on NPR mm. talking about this. I think it's a Cole Porter song. Let's, let's face the music and dance. Mm. And he was talking about Fred Astaire. And so I looked it up. And I've I've known Fred Astaire, you know, all my life. Anyway, uh, I mean his his work. Oh, okay. Um, uh-huh. And so I I looked it up on online, and just it's just so beautifully done. It's so elegantly done uh, that I I started listening just recently to a lot of Fred Astaire. But you know, I listen to a lot of jazz. I listen to um, not so much country and rock, but my kids and my wife are into that kind of thing. And sometimes okay. I hear hear something, I think, oh, that's not bad. Sure. Um, <laughs> but but typically, I I go for things that are maybe a little bit more more complicated in terms of of harmonic approaches. You know, uh-huh. maybe a maybe a little bit more melodic. I mean, a lot of the music today I find isn't so much very melodic, mm. and uh, sure. I I, I kind of miss that. So. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm. Uh, one other quick question before we jump into these other segments. I kind of got the uh, impression that you're a little bit of a foodie. Is that right? Oh, yeah. 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 A vegan foodie? <laughs> yeah, I am. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and you like to cook. So you mm-hmm. make the food yourself and you probably enjoy eating out? I, well, it depends. I mean, eating out for a vegan. <laughs> that can be tricky, a, I imagine. It, it, it can be tricky. And some places, most places can do something kind of vegetarian. But increasingly, there are a lot of vegan places uh, opening up. You know, I, I said before that I, I go to um, the Czech Republic every year to to do some recording. And in this town, Brno, which where where we record, there's about three or four vegan restaurants there, mm. and I really enjoy eating there. And just this past summer, I was at the International Society for Contemporary Music World Music Days in Tallinn, Estonia. And there, they have the most fantastic vegan restaurant. Oh. Uh, it's it's this place called V, and Just it the is the letter V. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and it's very small, but very very good food. The best vegan food I've had anywhere. Uh, wow. Really really good. Yeah. Oh, neat. Mm. <laughs> well, let's get to our improv segment. I could talk to you all day, but I, I'll keep this moving along here. <laughs> okay. Uh, the improv segment of every episode is a try this at home, a hack experiment that will enhance listeners' lives with music. Do you have an improv that you can give to our listeners today? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this, and I, I remember feeling that, you know, one of the things that is a downside of music is that everywhere you go, there is some. You know, and it's it's always in the background, and very often I, we we can hear it, but we don't actually listen to it. Mm-hmm. And so I thought for this, it might be good if people could just take five minutes to lay on the floor, empty their minds, just breathe in and out. It's almost like a yoga mm-hmm. uh, meditation mm-hmm. for like five minutes, and then when they're feeling kind of centered and still, put on a track. Of, of music that they that they like lay back down on the floor and just 
listen. And try and empty your mind. Don't think about you know the kids or you know the shopping or any of that,、mm-hmm. uh, and just listen to the music. And I I think that's probably one of the most rewarding and deeply moving things you can do.、Mm. And for some of us, that could be seen as an exercise. Like it would take some discipline to do nothing. <laughs> it does. Just... It, it, yes, yes, it does. <laughs> and I think I think increasingly people don't take that pleasure and that that liberty with their lives to just take some time for themselves and have some time doing nothing.、Mm-hmm. I mean, literally just doing nothing. It's something we almost feel ashamed to say that we're just doing nothing. Sure. But I think you know we need this on a on a physical level, and I think on a. On a psychological and emotional level, we need it also.、Mm-hmm. And you did send me a track too that listeners can use if they'd like something specific to listen to. They can either listen to something of their own or a track of yours that you sent. I'll put a link of that in the show notes. Yeah, it's a piece called Drift, and this piece was written in response to. I, I grew up in St. Louis, and during the summers, a bit like we have here in Ohio, it's inland, and we get these. Massive cloud banks that come in—you know, they're just these big billowy things that just move slowly across the sky, and you can tell that time is elapsing, but it almost feels timeless. And that is what I try to do with this piece called "Drift," which is for string orchestra and oboe solo.、Mm-hmm. And I think you have a story to tell us about that. Before I hear that, how can listeners connect with you? Learn more about your work.、Uh, I have a website here that I'll include in the show notes. What, a, what about some other ways of connecting? Actually, why don't、yeah. you tell us what the website is? The website is、uh, my name. It's www. Douglas Neans. That's D O U G L A S K N E H A N S. dot com. And there you'll you'll find more about me than you probably ever could want to know. <laughs> <laughs> You're also on Facebook. I am. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Spotify. I'm on Instagram.、Okay. So usually, if you just search Dinians, you'll you'll come across me. Okay, wonderful. I will include links to, in the show notes to those as well. Great. Tell us about the song "Drift." Yes. Well, this piece was written after I got to Ohio. And noticed that really Ohio is about on the same latitude as St. Louis, although it's in the Ohio Valley. So the the weather is not much the same because it it tends to skip north of us. So if there's a big storm coming or if there's snow, we would normally get dumped on in St. Louis. And then as it moves east, it tends to veer more up to Cleveland and, and miss us. But what doesn't are these unbelievable summer clouds. And one day, when I was just walking and looking at these clouds, it, it it reminded me of when I was younger in St. Louis, in these blazing hot summers, just lying outside, just looking at the clouds. And I thought, gee, that would be great to write a piece for that. And I had this opportunity to because my friend Awadajan Pratt, who's a superb pianist and a, and a conductor,、uh, had a small string orchestra here at CCM. And the principal oboe of the Cincinnati Symphony、uh, wanted a piece, and so I wrote this little piece for him and a string ensemble of CCM led by Awadajan Pratt. And the result was this work called "Drift," where I tried to capture that sense of just laying there and and looking at this incredible expanse of slowly drifting clouds. Hence, its name, "Drift."
To listen to the full performance of Drift, go to Spotify and search Drift Douglas Neans or follow the link in the show notes. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today. A special thank you goes to the young listener who submitted this week's listener improv. Each episode includes an improv from our guest, a try this at home experiment or hack that enhances life with music. We also feature listener submitted improvs, the practical ways you utilize music to enhance your life. Today's listener improv comes from Vanessa, who left this comment on the website. Hi, my name is Vanessa. I am 11 years old. I use Just Dance on the Wii to have fun dancing with music and being competitive with my sissy Delaney. What a great way to enhance life with music. You're getting in movement. I know my kids' gym teachers have actually used Just Dance in gym class. So it's a fun way to get off the couch or away from the desk. Even one song is going to leave you energized and with a smile on your face. Just Dance is a social activity, but can also be done by yourself when no one else is available. And you can learn some great dance moves while you're at it. I'm thinking I need to get Just Dance. I grew up Baptist and I married an engineer, so we are terrible dancers. This might help us out. Hmm. Anniversary gift idea. Please let me know the ways you enjoy music by leaving a comment on the website, mpetersonmusic.com slash podcast, commenting on social media. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or in an email, mindy at mpetersonmusic.com. I would love to hear from you. Until next week, may your life be enhanced with music.